For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Oh, fashion and its wasteful ways. It does make me mad. We're still buying clothes with the express intention of throwing them away after just a few wears. Now, thankfully, that story is becoming more familiar and there is stuff being done to change the culture around it. Although I'd have to say that some people still have no idea. And I don't think fast fashion is really slowing down. Not yet, anyway. But what is even less widely considered or understood at the consumer level is overproduction. And that really only started to hit mainstream news a couple of years ago. The fashion production process is extremely wasteful. The whole system is built on overordering, gambling on selling stuff and factoring in large amounts that you know you're not going to sell. We've heard this on the podcast before, particularly in episode 63 with Christina Dean. And if you didn't hear that one yet, I suggest you nip back and take a listen. Big brands expect to landfill and burn unused fabric in large amounts. Okay, so how do we solve it? There's loads of solutions being discussed from better recycling to cradle to cradle design, from composting to more freaky ways of breaking down textiles waste. Did any of you read that Vanessa Friedman New York Times piece about the tiny bugs that can eat polyester? Fascinating. We'll share a link. But while these solutions are intriguing and valuable, don't we actually need to address the system that creates the problem in the first place if we're going to have a hope of solving it? The one thing the industry is most reluctant to talk about is cutting production, making fewer garments. You know the arguments that growth is good, that it's the only way to thrive, that if we stopped producing so much, what would happen to all the garment workers? Okay, but surely there are alternative systems. One of those is manufacturing on demand, which is being looked at by some of the big sports giants, like Nike is pouring money into digitising supply chains and 3D printing and lean manufacturing with shorter lead times. But can the small guys do it? And what does it take to disrupt the model? This week's guest is Zoltan Charki, who, with his business partner Eric Fu, runs the Australian on-demand t-shirt business Citizen Wolf. They describe themselves as a fashion company with a tech problem. They say 99% of fashion brands default to mass production, which means that 7.6 billion humans of different shapes are forced into a handful of sizes. But these so-called standards fail four out of five people. Tailoring, they say, is the answer. And it was pretty normal, even as recently as your grandma's generation. 
Unfortunately, the traditional process is slow, it's expensive and it's clunky, and that's why tailoring is mostly limited to fancy suits and wedding dresses. Now, Citizen Wolf is built on a simple idea that the clothes you wear every day can and should be custom-made just for you. And in the process, they've disrupted the unsustainable mass-produced fashion system. Citizen Wolf likens fast fashion to junk food and says it's just as bad for the environment as it is for you. And what they propose is to build businesses on local, ethical and made-to-order and using technology to achieve that. If you're listening in iTunes, don't forget to hit subscribe and please consider rating and reviewing us. I'm happy to announce that Wardrobe Crisis is now on Stitcher and we've finally got our newsletter up and running. So you can sign up via clairepress.com to get weekly sustainable fashion news and links straight into your inbox. Let me know what you think of the show and what's going on with you. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. But now let's hear from Zoltan. Hello, Zoltan. Hi, Claire. I'm excited we're recording this. Same. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I want to start with a bit of controversy. You spoke at the Legacy Fashion Summit in Sydney recently, and you said, quite simply, fashion is in crisis and overproduction is the default. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely correct. Everybody who listens to your show would know the stats, but one in three clothes made every year goes straight to landfill. Or is incinerated. Or is incinerated. And then a further third are sold, but then end up in landfill within 12 months. Quite simply, there's a structural issue. And the default is oversupply due to mass production. And that's really where we started the business, because we thought if we were going to be in the fashion game, we, we had to be part of the solution. But overproduction is something that no one wants to discuss. I mean, the cliche is to say the elephant in the room, but it is. No one in business really wants to talk about producing less because profits lie with production, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's the sacred cow at the heart of the industry. And look, fashion's not alone, any kind of mass production. The business of being in a factory is producing it as cheaply as possible, and you get that through scale. So producing at scale is the default. That's what the factory wants, and that's what the brands in many ways are forced into. To uh, fulfil minimums? Yeah, exactly. To have stock on hand? Yeah, so there's a forecasting issue where everyone obviously expects that they're going to sell perhaps more than they can. Except, Um, actually, just to pick you up on that, in terms of big fashion businesses, they know they're not going to sell it. You know, actually, you're in profit if you sell a bit. If you sell a bit more, then you're rolling in it. And actually, the waste is, like you say, default. Yeah, and and it's built into the system. It's built into their business models. And they're quite happy with not selling X percent, whatever it is. I'm not sure that's not my business. But whatever X percent that is, they're more than happy for it to just go away. And (laughs) sadly, that means go to landfill. So yeah, it's it's a chronic problem. And I mean, we talk a little bit about um, that old Kevin, I'm old enough to know the Kevin Costner movie, Field of Dreams. Build it and they will come. And you know, that is the defining methodology of fashion. And it's crap. (laughs) It's just simply not true. I love a straight talking Aussie. (laughs) But you're reinventing, you're disrupting the whole idea. So, yeah, our business is quite simply built on on-demand manufacturing. So we only make something if we sell it. As a result, we don't sit on stock. Uh, we don't go on sale. You know, we're not a seasonal business. We're not trend-led. So um, we don't have any of those kind of issues. And that means that we can run a much leaner business as well. Okay, I'm going to ask you to speak in detail about how you do what you do. But you make T-shirts. It begs the question, 
even if you're doing it in an efficient, disruptive way, do we really need more T-shirts? Well, that is a good question. And the simple answer is probably not. Mm. You know, if I'm honest, the world doesn't need more T-shirts with the asterisks mm. in the way that they're currently made, which is offshore generally, produced at the lowest cost um, with exploitation throughout the whole supply chain. You know, there's many businesses here in Australia that sell T-shirts for like $5 and it's just not sustainable. They might be making money, but frankly, they're the only people making money. And the $5 T-shirt is a symbol of exploitation. There's just no way around it. All right, I looked for some stats and I'm not sure how reliable they are, but according to theworldcounts.com, and it's actually quite a fun website, you can watch (laughs) things count in real time and you can spend hours. Yeah, yeah. According to them, 29 million tonnes of cotton are produced yearly. And now obviously all that cotton doesn't go towards T-shirts, but that is equivalent to 29 T-shirts for every person on earth. Wow. And in some territories, they reckon, we're consuming as much as 100 T-shirts for every person in the country. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, that's an incredible stat. I mean, I don't want to be misleading because that's cotton the equivalent of, and obviously that cotton ah, is right, used yeah. to make other clothes, bed sheets, towels, yeah, everything. So right, let's put right, that in right, perspective. Right. But even so, the way that the current system operates is kaput. All right, if we agree with that, let's talk about how you do things completely differently at Citizen Wolf. So we've built a, a system, a factory, in fact, here in Sydney, where we make everything piece by piece. So single piece production. So you come into the shop or online and run through the magic fit algorithm. And then that basically instantaneously creates a dynamic pattern, which is cut on a big laser by Jackie and then sewn by hand by our two seamstresses here in St. Peter's. And that process takes around about seven days at the moment. We are aiming to get it faster. By the end of the year, we'll be under a week, maybe like five days. And then the goal is definitely same-day production. And on-demand is, from a planetary perspective, as good as tailoring. But actually, tailoring is a much better solution for the customer because they get to choose their fabric, they get to choose the style, and then we fit it to their body. We've built an algorithm which effectively simplifies and automates the process of tailoring because everybody wants the outcome of a perfectly fitting garment, but not everybody can spare the time or has the ability to go to the shop wherever it happens to be and get fitted and then go back and, for, you know, for a second fitting or a third fitting or, or however it is. And I mean, some people would relish that process. I mean, I would. Some people would, but I guess that's part of the problem with tailoring and why it currently sits at the top end of the market because it's a super high-touch business. Yeah. It was like a ridiculous luxury. I mean, people don't, do they? Just even to do with time. Right, exactly. So we started by designing out the measuring tape. We knew that we had to, if we wanted to actually do tailoring at scale, we had to solve the data input issue. I just want to stop you for a second and remind listeners that we're talking about T-shirts. Yeah, this is true. Because this concept is like so understandable when you're thinking about a dress, a wedding dress or a suit. Right. And that's where tailoring kind of sits at that high end of the market. But the honest to God truth is that most people don't wear those clothes most of the time. No. You know, you might get married once or twice or something like that in your life. Um, and if you wear suits to work, you know, that, that's a segment of the population that, that's dropping, in fact. So the casualization of the workplace is actually one of the trends that, that we sit on, I suppose, 
and are in response to because everybody still wants to look great even if they can't wear that power suit, you know, that suit of armour that it's traditionally been typified by. So, yeah, we thought, look, tailoring is the answer, both to the customer's dilemma with trying to find clothes that fit, because let's be honest, shopping is tough. (laughs) You know, having to go to the mall or wherever it is and try on 10 or 12 brands or something and then multiple sizes within just to find something that maybe kind of fits. To your point before about time, like nobody's just nobody's got the time for that anymore. So your magic fit algorithm element, how does it work? So we take height, weight, age, and then for women also we need bra. And with those three or four pieces of biometric data, we create a mathematical model of your body that's 95% accurate. And it's been honed over thousands and thousands and thousands of iterations. And people always pull me up on it and and call it bullshit, but um, it's not. And in fact, the human body is far more predictable than people like to believe. And yet, the traditional ways that we have figured out sizing for clothing have really failed to predict that efficiently. And I've got a bit of a stat here. So the Australian standard women's wear sizes were based on data from the 1920s. I once wrote a big feature about this for Vogue. Mm. But then in 2007, they abandoned those standards. And so now brands set their own fit guidelines and those vary a lot. But lots of people still use those old fit sizes and think about evolution. People have changed size. They've gotten bigger. They're just different shapes to how they were 100 years ago. They are. And actually in this kind of unregulated or unmeasured environment, no one really knows what to do. And so sizes really vary a lot according to which brand you're shopping. Yeah, and vanity sizing is one of the pain points of shopping. Oh, you know? which I fall for. Oh, look, I'm an eight. Marvellous. I'll buy that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. There's a psychology around it, which is, I mean, the whole idea is to get you to buy more stuff. So we estimate your measurements using maths, basically. Because we you've call got it magic so much data. It <laughs> <laughs> I prefer magic yeah, to maths. Same, right? Doesn't everybody? So um, yeah, it's not such a sexy sales point, is it? Yes, like- math fit. No, <laughs> it doesn't have the same ring to it. But I like that it is empirically grounded and actually is based on data. Yes, I mean that's why it's real. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we um, we spent about the first eighteen months of our business actually we hand cut every single t shirt and we did measure people. I saw you do it. I've been here since the start. Yes, yes. And actually, this was a very time-consuming process for all the algorithmic wonder. You were actually cutting a T-shirt one at a time. I know you're still doing that. But after measuring people on-site in the store. Yeah, it was a, a very unscalable model. For the longest time, we kind of resisted creating a factory. And we we desperately tried to integrate the legacy supply chain into a new way of doing things. But actually, I mean, there's a lot of pushback. We've we had nothing but problems trying to do that. People are wedded to the way that they've done things in the past. If it's worked, if they're making money, if they have a successful business, they don't want to change. I always remember you telling me about going to, you know, a small scale production guy and saying, OK, this is how I want to work. And they're like, no, 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 that's sampling. That can't be your production. You can't make everything on demand like one of these and then another one of these. It can't work. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, I mean, that was, you know, when we set up, I, I was going around Sydney talking to everybody that was in the manufacturing business and just constantly kept hearing, no, you know, no, that's not the way. I'll make you 100 T-shirts, I'll make you 500, even better. But And I'll make you one, that's fine, but, yes, one's called a sample. And I'm like, great, well, whatever your hourly rate is, I'll pay it. I don't care how many you make me, but can we just work like that? 
And they said, no. <laughs> and I'm like, hang on, but if you're making the same amount of money, why does it matter? And it's funny, you know, like people get into just, they have their blinkers on. This is the way things have always been done. And they didn't want me, somebody not from the industry, trying to... They just thought you are crazy. <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah. And um, so we ended up creating our own factory as a result. At the start of this year, we moved into a new space, which is really cool because it gives us the space to scale over the next 12 months. We built that, that whole tech stack is proprietary because we just couldn't find, when we started, we just couldn't find anything that did it. And there were like independent bits that we could have sort of knitted together. But by the time we ended up paying all the fees and all the rest of it, it was actually more effective that we built it ourselves. We had a goal that we wanted to get to. We knew that we were going to create this algorithm. We just needed to build the data set that would allow us to do that. At the time, often it didn't feel like that. But, um, but yeah, we, we, so we measured by hand thousands of people here in Sydney and they were kind enough to come into the shop and, and buy something, which was, which was really great. So we built up that data set and then we collected a few much larger data sets from around the world that we got access to and we kind of smashed them together to create this algorithm. So by hopping online and applying the magic, customers can get a T-shirt that is essentially tailored to them. Yep. They can choose colours and fabrics. I know you use a lot of certified organic cotton. We do, yeah. What happens if it doesn't fit? <laughs> As I said before, it's 95% accurate. If you think about the bell curve of, of any kind of data set and our population, our bodies conform to that. If you're in the middle of that bell curve, it, it is more accurate. As we get to the outliers, it dwindles. But either way, regardless, we have an unequivocal guarantee that if we make you something based on the magic fit algorithm and it doesn't fit, we do free alterations if we can, or we'll straight up remake the garment if we can't. Uh, because once you've got something and you're wearing it, then we can calibrate where that went wrong. And in fact, we really love it when it doesn't work because that allows the algorithm to get smarter. So we feed that data yeah. back into it. And the more people that we put through the system, the better the algorithm gets. Do you think of yourselves as a tech company or as a sustainability company or as a fashion company or all of them? Well, frankly, we sit at the nexus of the three, I'd say. We talk about ourselves as a tech company with a fashion problem. <laughs> and because fashion is not our background, we are able to ask naive questions and not really jump to a, a foregone conclusion. And I think that being outsiders and not having been trained in this business is actually one of our greatest assets. And it's allowed us to get to where we are, you know, which is an on-demand tailored T-shirt company, which when we began, everyone told us we were crazy. <laughs> Quite simply, they were like, it can't be done. No one will buy it, no one will pay for it. It just can't be done. But that was a bit like a red rag to a bull. And we were like... I think it can be done. <laughs> Let's We're figure prove it out. You need some crazy to make things happen. Yeah. I'm reading a fascinating book at the moment. It's called Originals by a writer called Adam Grant. And he tracks how originality can be fostered, but then tells all these stories of startups and people who've pioneered things. And actually not being obviously within a particular industry can be a market advantage because you're thinking differently. And I think that's interesting, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so what, tell us your story. So you and Eric... <laughs> background what? Uh, Eric and I met in an advertising agency of all things uh, many 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 years ago here in Sydney and then we both had like over a decade in that business not here in Australia I was in Europe he was in China I quit my very comfortable salary back in 2009 to create some software 
and we were trying to solve a problem that I'd had as an art director in, in Adland, but I didn't know anything about business. I knew nothing about uh, B2B sales and anyway, the tool that we were trying to create worked and I'm still really proud of it, but ultimately I couldn't turn it into a business. From there, I fell into a fashion brand with a really good friend of mine and we made art around books we liked, printed graphic t-shirts and sold it to the people who had tagged that book on Facebook. So it was a very nice little system and whilst Facebook ads were very cheap, it worked. We progressed from graphic tees to, we ended up doing a full menswear collection and it was outsourced. Manufacturing was in Portugal and China at that point. And so I'd I'd been through that semi-traditional, I would say, side of the business and I'd had all the pain that a lot of people feel whilst doing that. Anyway, that sort of petered out and um, and Eric and I were sitting down one day and just chatting. And um, he made a, a comment that was, you know, he's self-admittedly short and he'd been living in China for a long time and so, there, you know, there are tailors on every corner and they're not expensive and you can get anything you like. You know, they don't really mind. They'll make you anything. It's not like a, a tailor here, which is like you can have a fancy suit or you can piss off. So, you know, he'd come from that world and, and arrived back in Australia and really struggled. He was like, literally, everything I buy has to be altered and then I have to be able to trust that whoever's doing the alteration isn't going to stuff it up. And quite simply, why is it so hard to find clothes that fit? So the design problem that you found a solution for was around being able to find clothes that fit and not being wasteful. But at what point did sustainability become front and centre of this idea? Because when I think of Citizen Wolf, I think of best practice sustainability and a lot of talk around why the why, mm. you know, why you do it now. When did that kick in and what does it mean to you? We did set out to solve the fit problem and that led us down the path of, okay, well, tailoring effectively. I mean, that has always and for many years solved the fit problem. Most clothes up until the Industrial Revolution were fit for purpose. You know, they were made for whoever was going to wear it. So we always knew that tailoring was the answer. The, The challenge was how do we do tailoring at scale and how do we do it at a price point that most people can afford in a category that is kind of like an evergreen wardrobe staple, not just a fancy suit. The more that we got into it, the more we realised that we'd sort of inadvertently found a solution to what is the biggest problem in fashion, which is oversupply and and the, the planetary impacts of that business model. So by trying to solve fit, we ended up challenging, as I said before, the sacred cow at the heart of the industry. And you know, since the Industrial Revolution, the prevailing idea has been that mass production is the only way to clothe people en masse. And we now believe, thanks to technology, Mm. um, that that's no longer the case. Mm. I want to finish up talking about that. So how can tech potentially really change the way that we consume, produce and market fashion? I mean, it's a big question, but is that I think often we look back when we're trying to solve, in inverted commas, fashion sustainability issues. We're like, if we just went back to the way things were, if we designed for longevity, if we didn't throw things away, if we slowed down. But what about, you know, hurtling towards the future and looking at it that way? I think we're on the cusp of major change. You know, AI is going to revolutionise the supply side of the business. Forecasting is going to get better. That will in itself go some way to solving the oversupply issue. But even the best models in the world are never going to get it completely correct. 
Who's doing good work there? I mean, I have just been looking into some of this stuff around Adidas and Nike. If these huge global companies can produce less and in doing so sell more of the stock that they currently have at the volumes that they're doing, it, it makes massive, massive impacts on the, on the dollars. So I think you're going to see change up at that level. I think it's really hard as you work down the volume scale to the smaller brands because they don't have access to the AI, they don't have the, the capital to figure it out. And Also, the idea of traditional fashion skills is quite disconnected from the idea of working with tech experts, making a pattern by hand, sitting down, draping on a dummy, whatever it is. They're just totally different to being able to understand data or build algorithms. They are. But I think you can see in, in companies like Stitch Fix in the US, they're doing incredible things with data scientists and machine learning and stuff like that. And they're, they're growing like a weed as a result. So on the front end, on the supply side, you know, AI, is, it is going to change the game. And then robotics is going to change the future of manufacturing, I think, in a big way too. And if you put those two things together, I think it's going to go one of two ways, right? Because technology is, it can be used for good and it can be used for evil. And I think that there is a chance that robotics is going to drop the price of manufacturing. And it's going to help countries like Australia onshore a lot of manufacturing that has up until this point been done overseas. And that's a good thing. But it also means that if you can produce it cheaper, then you're going to produce more of it. And then you get, it's just the same supply issue. So you actually have to have the right reasons for doing what you're doing in order to be able to use this stuff to make fashion more sustainable. I yeah. mean, we're kind of relying on humans being kind and smart as well. And I'm not sure <laughs> that that always plays out. No, I mean, I'd like to believe that people are inherently good. Oh, I mean, I. there are always a few bad eggs, but so most I, but people human are human greed is a real problem. Human greed is a problem. And I think, I think you only have to look at the, the status quo of the industry at the moment to get a really mm. good read on, mm. on what that means. Okay, so but what, I think it's gonna, what's your prediction then? So I really do think that we have to, as an industry, we have to rethink the customer experience and producing in the hope of selling is no longer the right way to proceed. Like the challenge is to get the manufacturing so good and so fast that actually there's no downside to producing on demand. It's just fascinating. So you can actually, when we think about speeds, you can actually be producing this way, almost in a fast fashion way, in inverted commas, though with integrity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we talk about like, oh my goodness, these big companies like Forever 21, they can rush styles from the factory to the shop floor in two weeks. Well, you can beat them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's tailored and it's ethical and we only use natural fibre. That's what I call disruptive. If you can come to the shop or come onto the website and get a custom fit made to measure t-shirt, which I can then supply faster than the Iconic can deliver you something made in China, then I have to win the game. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that. 
because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you. Because I love you.